This podcast may contain explicit language. Welcome to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast, the show that uses a unique grading style to redefine what the greatest movies are. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. Tonight, we apply our patent-pending Stanley rubric to Judgment at Nuremberg from 1961, directed by Stanley Kramer, written by Abby Mann, starring Maximilian Schell, Spencer Tracy, Judy Garland, Marlena Dietrich, Montgomery Clift, and Burt Lancaster. However, quickly before we get to the show, next week we will be discussing one of the biggest movies of the 1980s, Top Gun from 1986. Directed by Tony Scott, written by Jim Cash and Jack Epps Jr., starring Tom Cruise, Anthony Edwards, Kelly McGillis, Val Kilmer, and Tom Skerritt. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. You can also email the show at greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com to sign up for our newsletter, or find us on Instagram, Twitter, or now TikTok at the handle at Podcast. And as always, please like, follow, rate, and review the show on whichever podcast platform you use. We would really appreciate it. So Dad, let's turn our attention to Judgment at Nuremberg. What is your relationship to this movie? Well... This is a movie that I always wanted to see and I had heard about and, and such, but it's not on television a lot. And in fact, I think it was possibly on either AMC or Turner that it was on in about 1980 or excuse me, 96 or 97 when I finally got to see it. It was on my list of must-sees, but just it did not have availability. I remember watching it and going, yeah. Okay, this is really good. Yeah, I had much the same similar story. I think, and we'll see this here in the upcoming recognition section, but it was number 10 on AFI's 10 Top 10 on the courtroom drama section. And so for me, it was always one of those that, okay, you eventually have to see this. I think it was on TCM sometime in the last two or three years. And eventually I watched it and I agree, this is a very good movie. I think to some extent the subject matter has caused some people to shy away from it. I mean, there's nothing that gives you a nice warm feeling other than an entire nation adopting a philosophy of Nazism, which ends up destroying uh, a country and killing six million people. That's a warm fuzzy? I'm being facetious. Do you really want to be facetious about that? It's such a heavy movie that... I think a lot of people have shied away from it because of it. Like you said, this is a movie that's not on very many places. We had to buy the Blu-ray specifically just to be able to watch this. It's not even available for rent anywhere on streaming, which is unusual. So, I don't know. The the fact that it's not really available, is that more of a byproduct of people don't know about it? Or it's a movie that necessarily people just don't want to see? Yes. All right. So what do you think this movie is about, though? The responsibility uh, for a moral wrong caused by a government or a whole group of people and who ultimately has responsibility. I mean, it's oftentimes where they're talking about, well, I was just following orders or I was just following the law. At what point does it transform from being someone who's just following with what's being done because you're a soldier or a lawyer or an employee versus then turning it on its ear and saying, hey, hold it, this is something that morally is wrong and I can't put up with it. I think if you remember back to either of our times discussing the original Indiana Jones movies, we had commonly mentioned that they used the Nazis in that movie, particularly because they fit a certain parameter of what was conceived of as the ultimate evil. It was hard not to depict Hitler and the Nazis as being the most evil thing to ever occupy the face of the earth, especially at that time. So this is putting to the test 
the human side of what it might have been like to be a citizen under that regime. And where does the breaking point make for who is exactly evil, who did things that compromised their values, and what is their responsibility as an average ordinary citizen, even though the people on trial were necessarily the judges in this film, and I think they do have a lot more culpability as we see throughout the course of the film, Shell does put the German people also in focus through the course of the movie, and I think that's very intentional in the writing. I would encourage anybody who watches this film to follow it up by reading Eric Larson's book In the Garden of the Beasts. It's about the American ambassador to Berlin during the rise or the first days of Hitler. And Larson portrays these people as very charismatic, very very inviting and warm, and people liked them. And then you contrast that with what they were doing behind the scenes, and it's easy to see sometimes how somebody can appear to be something that you want them to be because they're charming and they're photogenic and they talk well or they look good on television and then not pay attention to what they're actually doing. Not that there's any more modern comparisons that I can think of off the top of my head. Uh, More facetiousness? Yes. I see. I was going to say there's a rather obvious relatability to today, but I'll save that actually for when we get to kind of the scoring. So without further ado, do you have a plot summary ready for us? Oh, I do. In 1947, the war crimes trials continue in Nuremberg, Germany. Dan Haywood, Spencer Tracy, arrives to participate in the trials as the chief judge of a three-judge panel. He is to hear evidence and decide the fate of four German judges, led by Ernst Janning, Bert Lancaster, a distinguished jurist and legal scholar. Prosecuted by U.S. Army Colonel Tad Lawson, Richard Widmark, and defended by Hans Rolf, Maximilian Schell, evidence is presented on the atrocities of which Janning is accused, including the sentencing of innocent people to death under the Nuremberg Laws of the Third Reich. As the trial unfolds, Judge Haywood seeks answers to how the crimes of the Nazis could have occurred, whether the German people understood what was happening, and where the fault lies. Thank you. Cast for this movie, Spencer Tracy as Chief Judge Dan Haywood, Burt Lancaster as Defendant Dr. Ernst Janning, Richard Widmark as Prosecutor Colonel Tad Lawson, Maximilian Schell as Defense Counsel Hans Rolf, Marlena Dietrich as Frau Berthold, Montgomery Clift as Rudolf Peterson, Judy Garland as Irene Hoffman, William Shatner as Captain Harrison Byers, Howard Kane as Hugo Wallner, Irene's husband, and Werner Klemperer as Defendant Emil Hahn. Recognition for this movie. Judgment at Nuremberg debuted on December 19, 1961 in the United States. The film grossed $6 million in the United States and $10 million in worldwide release. Judgment at Nuremberg currently holds a 92% at Rotten Tomatoes and a 60% on Metacritic. The film received 12 Oscar nominations including Best Picture, Actor for Spencer Tracy, Director for Stanley Kramer, Supporting Actor for Montgomery Clift, Supporting Actress, Judy Garland, Art Direction for Black and White, Cinematography for Black and White, Costume Design for Black and White, and Film Editing. Judgment at Nuremberg also won Oscars for Best Actor for Maximilian Schell, Adapted Screenplay for Abby Mann, and the Irving Fallberg Award for Stanley Kramer. In June 2008, AFI, in its 10 Top 10, acknowledged Judgment at Nuremberg as the 10th best film in the courtroom drama genre. Additionally, the film had been nominated for AFI's 100 Years, 100 Movies in 1998. In 2013, Judgment at Nuremberg was selected for preservation in the United States National Film Registry by the Library of Congress. Did you know? Many of the actors involved in the film did so for a fraction of their usual salary, 
because they felt the subject matter was so important. Did you know? Marlena Dietrich had a great deal of trouble performing in the scene between Mrs. Berthold and Judge Haywood when she claims German civilians did not know of the atrocities the Nazi government committed during the war. Dietrich, who during the war had worked for the Allies against the Nazis, found the sentiment so repulsive that she could not keep her concentration. Only after counseling by Spencer Tracy was she able to complete the scene. According to an interview with her grandson Peter Riva on Icon's Radio Hour, Dietrich would get physically ill to the point of vomiting in the evenings over this part. In a conversation with her daughter, Maria Riva, Maria told her to simply play her mother. The fictional Mrs. Berthold is a representation of the mother of Marlena Dietrich. Did you know? Marlon Brando wanted to play the role of Hans Rolf, the German lawyer who defends the German judges. Brando, in a rare attempt to garner the part, actually approached director Stanley Kramer about it. Although Kramer and screenwriter Abby Mann were very intrigued with the idea of having an actor of Brando's talent and stature in the role, both were so impressed with Maximilian Schell's portrayal of the same part in the original television broadcast Playhouse 90, Judgment at Nuremberg from 1959, that they had decided to stick with the relatively unknown Schell, who later won the Oscar for Best Actor for that role. Did you know? Watching Maximilian Schell shoot a scene one day, Spencer Tracy said to Richard Widmark, We've got to watch out for that young man. He's very good. He's going to walk away with the Oscar for this picture. This is exactly what happened. Did you know? Maximilian Schell's Oscar for Best Actor makes him the lowest billed lead category winner in history. He is billed fifth, after Spencer Tracy, Burt Lancaster, Richard Widmark, and Marlena Dietrich. Did you know? When Montgomery Clift showed up on set, his appearance was rather disturbing. Hair badly cropped, nervous, uncomfortable, and apparently at the end of an alcoholic bender. But Stanley Kramer thought that his condition made him look and speak exactly right for the role. Did you know? Montgomery Clift had a habit of cutting his hair very short when he was between films and would not work until it had grown back. In fact, his scene in this film was shot right after getting one of those haircuts. He also had so much trouble remembering his lines, the scene had to be reshot many times. Director Stanley Kramer finally gave up and told Clift to ad-lib his lines, saying that this would help to convey the confusion in his character's mind while he was being questioned on the witness stand. Quote, Monty seemed to calm down after this, Kramer later recalled. He wasn't always close to the script, but whatever he said fitted in perfectly, and he came through with as good a performance as I had hoped. Did you know? Montgomery Clift was so eager to be in the film that he offered to do it for expenses only and no salary. His deal didn't turn out to be such a reasonable break for the production budget since his expenses included an open tab for him and his friends at the Bel Air Hotel, chauffeured transportation, and all the liquor he wanted. Did you know? (laughs) On Judy Garland's first day on the set, cast and crew greeted her with warm and lasting applause. It was a welcome return to films for her, and her mood was further elevated by the lower pressure of acting in a cameo rather than carrying a picture as she had done in almost every film she made since childhood. Still, her joyful attitude made it difficult for her to perform her dark emotional scenes. Quote, Damn it, Stanley, I can't do it. I've dried up. I'm too happy to cry, she said. He gave her a 10-minute break before continuing to great effect. Quote, there's nobody in the entertainment world today, actor or singer, who can run the complete range of emotions from utter pathos to power the way she can, Kramer said. Did you know? Judy Garland persuaded Maximilian Schell to be more hostile towards her during the cross-examination scene. Afterward, she sent him flowers and a little note that said, thank you for being so mean to me. Did you know? Spencer Tracy's 11-minute closing speech was filmed in one take using multiple cameras shooting simultaneously. Did you know? In 1961, when this movie was released, 29 U.S. states had eugenics boards that performed forced sterilizations until they were struck down in 1979. Many states also had anti-miscegenation laws until the Supreme Court struck them down in 1967. So when the Nuremberg trials of the Nazi judges were going on in Germany in 1947, the U.S. had many of the same laws. Did you know? The television network premiere of the film was shown on ABC on March 7, 1965. It was interrupted to show news footage of the violence on Bloody Sunday 
during the Selma to Montgomery marches. The juxtaposition of the film about Nazi atrocities and the news footage of violence against African-American people resulted in sympathy and greater support for the civil rights cause. Did you know? Spencer Tracy had a bit of fun with Abby Mann. One day when Supreme Court Justice William O. Douglas showed up on the set, Mann brought him over to meet Tracy. To his embarrassment, Tracy told Mann in front of Douglas, quote, take your communist friends and go to hell. It was only later at that lunch that Mann realized Tracy and Douglas had known each other well for years. <laughs> with that, we'll take our first break and we'll be right back. All right, Dad, let's get to best performance. Who was your best performer? Uh, I picked Stanley Kramer. As a director, there was uh, this could have come across much differently than it did. Uh, it could have been very preachy. It could have been more in your face. I think there was a tendency on him to pull back at times and allow you to make your own choices. In a large way, uh, Spencer Tracy was the viewer who's trying to understand what took place and you're kind of in his shoes unearthing bits and pieces trying to come up with your own conclusion. And I thought Kramer did that very well. The pacing was great. The camera work was just uh, mesmerizing at times. Tracking shots. And even though you knew basically what the outcome was likely to be, he was able to build some suspense in this that I was I did not remember when I watched it previously. I think you could have gone in a lot of good places. There are performances galore within this movie from a directorial standpoint, from a camera work standpoint, to an acting standpoint, to a writing standpoint. I mean, you could have gone just about anywhere, and I probably would not have much of an argument against it. I had a tie just because I didn't think I could leave either person out. And I could have even gone for a three-way tie because Abby Mann's writing in this movie is outstanding. But I ended up with Maximilian Schell just because of how good a defense attorney he is. I've said previously, and obviously this being our courtroom drama month or our military courtroom drama month, that I'm just a sucker for clever defense attorneys. But this one was especially one filled with right, or, uh, righteous indignation, and that's always going to be appealing to me. Then add in the fact that Shell is an absolutely captivating lead attorney, where he constantly is panning back and forth between perfect German and English, while also giving a perspective in the German, or as to the German intuition during the war, and context for how everybody was feeling at the time. The way he thunders away at Lawson's arguments piece by piece, or anytime he gives a cross-examination, such as when he's cross-examining Cliff's character Peterson, he's just bewildering in how perfectly he seems to fit this role. It's the almost perfect marriage of a character and an actor. And I'm going to make a comparison for fit of character and talent to a particular role, while also not making it a direct comparison, because I don't think... Each of these actors is the same, but it reminds me a lot of the way Christoph Waltz seemed to be perfect for Hans Landa in, in Glorious Bastards. And I just can't say enough about how well he portrays Herr Rolf in this film. But my other tie, and you mentioned it before, and I would absolutely agree. I kept pointing to it during the course of the film, and I thought it'd be kind of an unusual one to nominate because I don't think either of us has nominated a cinematographer before, but... Ernest Laszlo, the cinematographer for this one, I thought was outstanding. I still have yet to figure out how he did half of the circling tracking shots that he did in the courtroom that basically got everybody's reaction staring at whomever was giving testimony at any one time. And the focus and intense amount of skill to record all of that and have that set up so well. I mean, maybe you could say that's direction. But I just love the way that the camera works and those zoom-in close-up shots that they have to really give some extra effect. I, I don't know who envisioned all of that or who storyboarded it, but I just thought the camera work in this film was absolutely outstanding. And I'm really not sure how he lost Best Cinematography to The Hustler. I like The Hustler. It's a movie I really enjoyed, but I don't think the camera work is special. This movie, I think the camera work is special. 
I, I can agree with you on a lot of those points. The the tracking shots and some of those, yes, they were just phenomenal. I, I would, I wish I could find some way of finding out exactly how they were shot. I tried doing a little bit of research on it in preparation for the show, but couldn't find anything and didn't have a whole lot of extra time to spend uh, perusing through to find it. But I agree with you. It is an extremely good job as a cinematographer. Your best secondary performance? I had uh, I had Shell. He was powerful and reflective. And uh, let me put it this way. I, I, I can connect with him because I did that job for a number of years. And at one point in my life when I realized, you know, nobody kind of helped me figure out what I was going to do or how I was going to do it. So it wasn't like I could decide, well, you know, maybe I should become an actor. And at one point I kind of thought, you know, maybe I would have rather been like a comedic actor or something like that. I, and then I, it dawned on me that being a defense attorney, you are acting. You're performing every time you're in there. And I would, I would set things up just to, to puff, to do things. I mean, it, it, Shell did a lot of the same things. It's a little different when you're trying it to a tribunal, you know, or as a jury. I mean, I, I would ask questions I knew were illegal because I wanted to ask them and I wanted the jury to hear them. Now, the judge, of course, is going to sustain an objection and tell the jury to disregard. But um, yeah, like they're really going to do that. And it's a lot of times, no matter what you're doing, you go up for a sidebar with the judge and you lose the request or the motion you've made. You just turn to the jury and nod like you won and then strut over to the table because you never want to exemplify that you're less than confident. And there's only one moment in this entire trial where Shell looks like a defeated man, and that's after... Uh, yawning testifies and he portrays it so well. He's like, everything I've worked for is now done. I can't do anything. But then it dawns on him. Maybe I can still pull victory out of the jaws of defeat by pointing out the hypocrisy of this whole thing. And so I just thought it was in a very, uh, it was an amazing performance. Well, given the position that he's in defending what is seemingly the indefensible the fact that he does it this well and gets you to almost sympathize with something you wouldn't have coming into the film ever thought that you could give a level of sympathy toward, I think is amazing in itself. My best secondary was Spencer Tracy. Haywood is the conscience of the film and the audience, as you kind of mentioned or alluded to before. As he goes back and forth on what is right and just, so do we. And some of this is by an extension of his performance. As he digs further into the case and context surrounding the case, the more complicated it seems to get, the more he seems to shine. And I think there is a part of the general public that wishes they had someone like this to make all the tough decisions for them so they didn't have to sift through all of the complicated feelings and emotions that come up with having to decide a case like this. But that's what Tracy serves here, and I think he does it aptly well. I can't fault you. I, I mean, I love Spencer Tracy. He's one of my all-time favorite actors, and I think his performance was outstanding, one of the better he had ever done. But there were so many great performances because I, I, I wanted to name him also. I also thought about Montgomery Cliff, who did a really good job. I think Richard Widmark was greatly undervalued from this film. I think he did a really commendable job being right on the surface of being vindictive without going too far vindictive, if that makes any sense. You, you could tell he took this personally. And then when you find out he was part of the effort in liberating the camps, you understand where he... Uh, where this, these feelings come from. It is very personal to him. I think that's blatantly obvious. Okay, so most charismatic for you? Marlena Dietrich. I mean, there's just something about her. She had been a star for so long, and even at this point, she comes across as being tough, but yet feminine and 
vulnerable. And she just has a presence. I mean, it's it's phenomenal, exactly. I, I don't know how else to convey it other than she just, she's a star. And she doesn't even have to say much or do much. And she just commands your attention on screen. I agree, but I also think that her most charismatic role is a different courtroom drama that we'll eventually discuss, Witness at the Prosecution. So I'll look forward to discussing that one when we get to it. My most charismatic is, oddly enough, Burt Lancaster. This might have been about the peak point in Lancaster's career. He was coming off the Best Actor Oscar he won for Elmer Gantry the year before, and he was known for playing rather tough and imposing leading men. However, this is a completely against-the-grain choice for him due to the absolutely subdued nature of the character he plays. There's just an immense sadness and guilt in Lancaster throughout the film, and you feel the weight of what he's accused of through his eyes, through the duration of the film. When his heart drops in those final moments with Tracy on screen, you get the sense of, I'm sure, what every well-meaning German who survived the war felt. This is a character study movie, and Rolf is the intuition of the film, trying to rationalize what happened. Haywood is the conscience of the audience, trying to weigh all of the complications in the trial. And Janning is the soul of the movie, who gives us the empathy for the German people that you will almost never find in other movies. I can very well understand, and he was a consideration I had, just because his feel you could sense his feelings of guilt and uh, remorse while he's sitting there, and I thought that was really a great performance. So it was tough for me, but, I mean, you're talking about probably 1A in my book because he was the other person I was thinking about as charismatic uh, when scoring. I think for me, the biggest part of what I thought about in order to give him most charismatic is he's the guy I think we're rooting for the most during the course of the movie. Mil Han is the complete opposite. He doesn't want to take any responsibilities for his actions. He didn't actually think he did anything wrong. And the number one thing that upsets people is when you think they did something obviously wrong and they have yet to admit it. Yawning through the course of the movie does nothing but take on the responsibility of everything that he ever did. Up until maybe that last moment where he wants to kind of give himself a little bit of a pass and Haywood won't let him. And because of that, you kind of root for this guy because he understands the gravity of his actions throughout the course of the movie, and you just want somebody to be responsible for the things that they did. And you mentioned uh, Emilian Arhan. That was played by Werner Klemperer, who uh, most people would now remember as Colonel Klink. He was a Jew, and his father was the conductor of the Berlin Philharmonic, uh, and a renowned classical violinist. And his mother was uh, the lead soprano for the Berlin Opera, also Jewish, and they fled to the United States. Klemperer was both a, an actually accomplished uh, violinist and opera singer. Um, and he did these parts a lot of times with some level of repulsiveness. I know when he said he was going to take Colonel Klink, he would only take the role if he could make Clint the biggest, stupidest, bumbling idiot on the face of television. I think his stipulation was if he was ever going to play a German or a Nazi, and a Nazi specifically, that either they had to be the most hateable character or the most bumbling, incompetent character because he wanted to give them no quarter for what they had done. All right, let's go to best scene then. I only have a few nominated for an almost three-hour movie. I think this can be condensed actually into some fairly minor pockets of importance. I think there's a lot of transition scenes and some kind of filler at times. But really, when you get to the heart of it, I think these are probably the, the biggest scenes in the movie. The opening statements, Peterson on the stand, Rolf's defense of eugenics, Lawson shows the Holocaust footage, is it possible, which is the scene from inside the prison where the judges are trying to actually grapple with how much they're responsible for? Shell rips into Hoffman, Yanning's statement, the verdict, and Haywood's goodbyes. Yes. Any that I left out? No, I think you covered it. Okay, what do you think is the best scene then? I really think that the cross-examination of Peterson is 
the best scene. I mean, it shows how, I mean, I hate to say it this way, but to some extent, Shell was taking the role of the Nazis during that time frame. And he conveyed how one of the reasons or one of the ways the Nazis acted, which is to attack the most vulnerable and set them up for ridicule and uh, and such and to tear into them such a way that they collapse, and then it makes it acceptable for all those around them to do the same. You know, picking on somebody's vulnerabilities or their uh, disabilities, and then conveying it to everybody around them to join in because it's funny now. I want to give a special asterisk on the Holocaust footage because I think for, gosh, probably a good majority of the American people, that might be the first time they ever saw real footage of the Holocaust at the time. I mean, going back to 61, how much was that publicly available? Was Life Magazine or like Time Magazine, did they do like a a spread of that? I seem to maybe recall that at, at one point in my mind, but I think the impact of that, just purely showing that in a, yes, fictionalized version, but a major Hollywood film is a really daring choice, but also hits home the importance of what they're discussing. So I think that deserves kind of a special asterisk. But for me, it's the one I'll also say is my favorite scene. And I I do love most of the cross-examinations, but Rolf's defense of eugenics. We have a term in the Duncan household shift. And this usually comes to mind when I hear a defense attorney work. Another easy allegory would be to paraphrase the Bible. Why are you worried about the speck in my eye where the, when there is a plank in yours? Yet I find Rolf's abilities not only as a defender not off-putting, but rather I respect and admire his cleverness in defense of what he often alludes to as not just the judges, but also himself and his countrymen pointing out the just rank hypocrisy of them being on trial for stuff that was legal in the Americas or in the United States at the time. And this should be the most despicable argument made in the film, but I find Rolf compelling in each moment throughout the scene where he handles himself with such great aplomb, firing away at point after point of the prosecution's argument. It's just the most engaging part of the movie for me, and I think that scene more than any other probably is what won him his Oscar. Well, I uh, I, I remember, that, and I'm drawing a blank right at the moment, is the name of the book. There was a book out that was last year, and it was about racism and the history of racism. And in the book, she comments that the Nazis came over in the early 30s and went through all of the Jim Crow laws from the Deep South because they were looking for ways of drafting laws against Jews in Germany, which were the Nuremberg laws. And they ended up rejecting most of the laws that they had found from the Deep South because they felt they were too overboard. Oh, another great moment in American history for us. What was your favorite scene? Yawning cell. I think it's just the culmination. Even at that moment, he's remorseful. He's sad. Even that moment, though, he's trying to find some justification, some vindication for his actions. And Spencer Tracy, in one sentence, just lays him out and basically shatters any hope he has of retaining his dignity over this situation. Agreed. What's the most indelible moment for you? There was so many. It was in the it, most of it was the the uh, courtroom scenes and the exam the uh, cross examination of uh, Judy Garland and again of uh, Montgomery Cliff's character. Both of their characters, both were just phenomenal. And as an attorney and somebody who did defense work a lot and trial work, you just really appreciate it. It was very well done. It was very realistic. A lot of times you'll see a film or a TV show and you can just tell that they overdid the dramatization because they really don't understand the law. But I can't say that in this case. So any one of those scenes, I guess, would be my favorite scenes. 
And uh, as far as indelible moment, I guess I'd go again back to uh, the whole thing with Peterson's cross-examination and how he completely was put off and he destroyed him. He took him from being functioning to basically psychologically off balance. I think for me, the one most striking moment of the entire movie is kind of a long, really drawn out moment. It starts about the point where Rolf is thundering away at Hoffman and just really going after her. And then Yanning puts a stop to it. To me, that was a remarkable moment in the course of the movie. But then following it up with his statement, I think it falls on you, that statement, with an almost deafening silence by the time he's done that he should hold himself accountable by holding that any defense for what he has done as more enabling of the very regime they were trying to eliminate. And he puts a stop to it. He puts his literal foot down, says no more. It was definitely the part that stuck with me for several hours after seeing it with you the other day. All right, let's take another quick break and we'll be right back. All right, Dad, do we have anyone to remember this week? Yes, we do. Mike Haggerty, an American actor who was in Seinfeld, ER, Friends, Somebody, Somewhere, and Brooklyn Nine-Nine, passed away this week. I I had done this and didn't transpose when I sent the list to you, but maybe it would behoove us to actually put photos if we're putting the memoriam up on our website so people can see who some of these people are. When I looked up Mike Haggerty, I was amazed at Oh, yeah, him. Okay, because I've seen him in so many different things, he was immediately recognizable. But uh, he passed this way at age 67, unfortunately, a very, as I'm getting closer to my 60s, that's uh, very young. Uh, Mickey Gilley, who is primarily a country, uh, American country singer, uh, he was 86. The reason I included him is because he had two key parts or two key roles in two very famous films in American cinema. The first was Gillies was where uh, Urban Cowboy, which was John Travolta and uh, Deborah Winger, started the whole cowboy craze in the cities across the country. And it was his his place, his uh, bar where it was shot. The other is, is, and I didn't realize this at the time, Mickey Gilly co-wrote the song Stand By Me, which was done by Benny King. Benny King, yeah. And uh, that was the root of the film by um, Rob Reiner, Stand By Me. And uh, the song is prominent in the song. So Mickey Gilley co-wrote that song uh, under a pseudonym back in the early 60s. So, And then lastly, Rick Parnell was primarily a drummer. Um, the reason I included him is, is he had a part in This Is Spinal Tap. If you have not seen This Is Spinal Tap, it is absolutely hilarious. It is well worth your time to watch. They spoof all of the British rock music of the 60s, and they make fun of the fact that it seems like every major band, their drummer dies under mysterious circumstances, based on Keith Moon or John Bonham. And uh, so they make a big joke about you know, throughout the film, they're showing and every time they show the band playing in a live performance, they have a different drummer. And so they started running out of actors who look could look like they drummed. I mean, they had Ed Bagley Jr. So they started recruiting actual drummers. And so Rick Parnell had a, or a part in this and did had a couple of lines and such. And when you look at him, you go, oh, yeah, all right. If, I've seen the film about three or four times. Like, oh, yeah, that guy. All right. So, but uh, he passed away at age 70 um, this last week. Well, thank you for that. And obviously a thank you to all of these performers that we celebrate each week. We honor them now with a moment of silence for their career and their contributions to the arts. Thank you. All right, let's go to best lines. I don't think any of these are funny lines. This is not a funny movie. I will say that I put up the longer, let's say, conversations or monologues. There are some fairly long monologues from this movie 
that I don't think we have time for expedience to read during the course of this show. But if you want, if you haven't seen the movie, go and look up some of these monologues because, I mean, maybe there are clips on YouTube that have them. I think some of these uh, delivered monologues are some of the best that I can remember in a, a particular film, especially a courtroom setting. And uh, the the way that they're delivered and shot are just amazing. But we'll keep this to some of the smaller comments or lines during the course of the film. I'll start with Hans Rolf. Should Ernst Janning have carried out the laws of his country? Or should he have refused to carry them out and become a traitor? This is the crux of the issue at the bottom of this trial. The defense is as dedicated to finding responsibility as is the prosecution. For it is not only Ernst Janning who is on trial here. It is the German people. That was a terrible accent. Madam Bartholdt, I wish you understood German. The words are very beautiful, very sad, much sadder than the English words. That's so much about German. They have so many more words for things than we do. But I would like to point out something I didn't include in the Did You Know section, but the music that's playing during that particular scene was actually a recording of Marlena Dietrich. (laughs) Okay. Judge Haywood. All I've heard is a lot of legalistic double talk and rationalization. You know, Curtis, when I first became a judge, I knew there were certain people in town I wasn't supposed to touch. I knew that if I was to remain a judge, this was so. But how in God's name do you expect me to look the other way at the murder of six million people? Colonel Tad Lawson, one thing about Americans, we're not cut out to be occupiers. We're new at it and not very good at it. My last one, Ernst Yanning and Judge Haywood. Judge Haywood, the reason I asked you to come, those people, those millions of people, I never knew it would come to that. You must believe it. You must believe it. Herr Yanning, it came to that the first time you sentenced a man to death you knew to be innocent. Hans Rolf, I'll make you a wager. Judge Haywood, <laughs> I, I don't make wagers. Rolf, a gentleman's wager. In five years, the men you sentenced to life imprisonment will be free. Hayward, Herr Rolf, I've admired your work in the courtroom for many months. You are particularly brilliant in your use of logic. So what you suggest may very well happen. It is logical in view of the times in which we live. But to be logical is not to be right, and nothing on God's earth could ever make it right. I don't have any left. Do you have any more? Nope. All right, let's go to the Stanley rubric then. Legacy is up first. You want to go first or second? Uh, I'll go second once. Okay. I give this a four for the industry because they have some respect for it, and maybe a few have it among the elite courtroom drama movies. I just don't think it's mentioned in the same breath as 12 Angry Men, Witness for the Prosecution, To Kill a Mockingbird, Anatomy of a Murder, which is a shame since I think this is possibly more impactful and just as good a film. Nevertheless, I have to go with a one for audience since you can't find this anywhere. I had to specifically buy it on Blu-ray for us, and I'm not sure how many people actually know of, let alone have seen this movie. Personally, I think this should be right up there with the films shown in every history class in every high school across the country, but it just doesn't seem to have the same stickiness as its peers. So that's a four for the industry and a one for audience for a five overall for me. Well, we're going to be a little bit off in the method by which we get to the same ending. Industry. I went with a three for Legacy simply because it is well regarded. You know, if you talk, maybe not your generation as much as those who are probably 40 and older, they know of the film. They've also probably seen it at least once. And if if you mention it, they go, oh yeah, that's such a powerful film. And It opened an opportunity. I I don't think necessarily, but for this film, you're going to find a lot of the Holocaust films that have come since. I I, I think there would be a difficult, there would have been a lot of difficulty, a lot of the public going in bulk to see Schindler's List if the whole 
indictment of Nazism in the concentration camps wouldn't have already been done 25 years earlier in this film. And so I went with a three for the industry for that reason. I, I went with a two for the public because, as I indicated, more older people see it, but even there, that's not quite as many as others. And, and again, your comment was pretty realistic. I don't understand why. I know for a fact in the high school that uh, I'm a school board member of, they have a unit on on the Holocaust, and I can guarantee they would never even consider showing this film, and they really should, because I think in a nutshell, it does more to explain both the occurrence of it happening and the behavior of the German people and nation since. So I, I came up with a five total. Well, the reason that I mention it should be shown in history classes, I think it's really easy to fall into the trap of this could never happen here because this is so extraordinary of a circumstance and these people must have really been evil. What this movie underpins is that it's a lot of people that were good intentioned and did it for love of country, but ended up basically looking the other way. And by doing that enough times, and enough people doing that, it ended up causing what is one of the most grotesque and evil regimes the history of the world has ever known. And so by only digging into that part of it, can you really seek to prevent that actually from happening? Because as we've already seen in this country over the last six years, it's a lot easier to happen than we think it is. Well, I'll just point out, and again, I go back to Eric Larson's book in the Garden of the of the uh, Beasts. One of the key uh, characters in the book is Hermann Goring, and Goring was extremely charming and personable if you talked to him or met him in real life. And he had been a national hero, other than Baron von Rickover in World War One. He was the next great flying ace, and Rickover died. The Red Baron died in World War One. So he was the, the greatest flying ace in Germany after World War I, and he held a great level of esteem. And I'm sure a lot of people would, you know, they would kind of scoff. Oh, it's, you know, Goering would never be involved in something like that. And it brings, it, it allows people to accept something that they're not looking behind the curtain to see what's really there. They're just kind of accepting that, okay, well, you know, this guy's okay, so I don't think there's going to be a big problem. The analogy I learned back years ago in college and law school is, is how do you cook a frog? You don't throw him into boiling water. You put him into cold water in a pot, and you slowly turn up the heat because eventually you'll cook the frog. But if you throw him into hot water, he jumps out. And that's a lot of what fascism is. It's a slow progression. And the movie does it very well of showing how a lot of people fell into the trap. So that was a five for you, five for me, average score of five between us. You didn't need help with the math, right? Impact significance. Do you want to go first or second? I'll go first this time. It did garner a uh, Shell and Academy Award. I think it helped uh, Richard Widmark's career and advanced him into the 60s. He had a long career both in television and in movies. I think it helped really build Spencer Tracy's reputation even further than it already had. And then I think the, the film industry itself really felt strongly about this film at the time and its Academy Award nomination. So I went with a four for the industry. And it drew fairly well for the time, $6 million domestically, $4 million, uh, in the foreign box office. So the public thought enough of it, and it was kind of a buzz. The critics liked it overall. So I went with the public with a four also. So I wanted an eight for combined impact significance. So I have to disagree with quite a few of your points variously in there. Oh, please do. 
first off, I don't think six domestically and 10 internationally overall was that big a deal. It was never a number one movie at the box office on any given weekend. It was not a high grossing movie for the year or the year after. It uh, was kind of like around somewhere between 12 and 15 at any one given time for, for the calendar year. And while it did garner a lot of Oscar support, it also lost a lot of those Oscars to West Side Story, for example. That being said, this is probably Stanley Kramer's most significantly recognized movie, and it was widely praised at the time with a few Oscars to boot. You forgot to mention that Abby Mann won as well as Kramer for the Thalberg Award. But this didn't create any major shifts for its cast or crew, as most of them were already big names. Stanley Kramer had already done at least one major recognized film. And yes, it helped him maybe put a pelt on the wall that helped him get a couple of other movies made in the later 60s, one of which we discussed already this season. But, I mean, Burt Lancaster had already won his Oscar. Spencer Tracy was a legend by this point. Marlena Dietrich had done several other movies. Judy Garland was a legend by this point. Montgomery Clift was almost at the end of his acting career by this time. So I just don't see the seismic shifts that were there. And I looked. I wanted to see if like Maximilian Schell was in something else that I could recognize or that I at least knew the title of. And there just wasn't anything. So it's not like it even launched his career where he makes this big breakout because of the role. I ended up going with a 3.5 for the industry based solely on the recognition from the Oscars as well as the good reviews, but it didn't seem to be at like one of the top elite movies of the time or necessarily, even though it got some critical recognition, wasn't necessarily something that piggybacked into his success for a lot of other people. For the audience, it's a decent box office return, but the biggest effect in this and why I ended up boosting it up a couple of other points. If this really did somehow play a role in the civil rights movement indirectly, I think it's significant. So I'll go with a four there for a 7.5 overall. And I had an eight. So that's a 7.75 average between us. Novelty. There are other courtroom dramas. There are other courtroom dramas that were based on true events. And there were courtroom dramas that were surrounding the military, as we've already seen this month. But this feels like a unicorn movie of sorts. It is. I really don't have much else like this film that I could come up with. I mean, there, there are, yeah, there, there's just really nothing to say that would be a comparison point. So I consulted our novelty spreadsheet to judge where it would fall in relation to the other films we've covered so far. And a 9.5 along with like The Wizard of Oz, High Noon, and Taxi Driver seems appropriate. So the camera work, as I mentioned before, is unique to this film, as is the subject material. The writing is outstanding, and the acting performances are top-notch. I can't quite go to a 10, but I would be damn close. I'd be almost tempted to go 9.75 here. Well, I didn't go quite that far. I went with a 9. And I'll point out that... You know, for the very reasons you indicated, which is there are a lot of films, uh, you know, courtroom dramas and military and whatever. I can't ever think of another film about a genocide. And uh, and I'm, I'm looking at this and I'm going, I, I don't think there were a lot of people even at that time frame or in, the, in 1961 who really understood what took place in the concentration camps. So... Um, I I went with a nine. I didn't think it was because of the circumstances that it was worth 9.5. So that's why I went with a nine. Classicness. This is your category. I'll let you go first. All right. I I start out and I look at this and I'm like, you know, we're still struggling with this concept of, you know, I'm just following orders versus I need to stand up for what's right and wrong. I mean, that's the genesis of uh, a few good men. That's why ultimately the two Marines are convicted because they didn't disobey an order and stand up for a, a, a weaker Marine. This continues and it goes through. I don't find, I mean, we're struggling yet. 
there are still people out there in the world who are questioning the existence of the Holocaust. So this is just as poignant a film today as it was in 1961. So from our definition of classicness, I can't think of too many films that would be as classic. The portrayal, to some extent, of women in this probably reflected the time frame. It was a little bit of a problem. There were some issues in regards to the ethics of some of the contacts and the communications between the judges and the prosecutors and such. So I had to go down from a perfect. So I went with a 9.5. I, I honestly cannot think of anything about this. It, you could do this film today. If it was released today, it would still be as relevant and as poignant today as it was 50, almost 60 years, or 60, almost six, or over 60 years ago. So I think we mentioned this first when we were talking about all the president's men and it was on election night 2020, that some films' classicness kind of boomerangs around. It'll be less classic because of different circumstances at the time. But I will completely agree with you. This film seems incredibly relevant to where we're currently at with the rise of, let's say, far-right extremist nationalism, much in the same way of fascism and Nazi tactics currently, and not just America, but just universally. I mean, we're getting this literally all over the place. We've had elections this week. We have them again next week of far-right dictators in a lot of different countries. As this continues- Hungary, Poland. I'm not even mentioning there. The Philippines, Brazil, Myanmar. I mean, all over the place, we're getting these far-right extremists rising up. And while we've kind of beaten back a little bit of that in some of the European countries, it's not like it's really the marker that we'd like to think it is, that we're somehow safe from all of that. And so I would agree that this is probably not a 10 if we were doing this in 2015, but history is always cyclical in nature. Thus, I tried. I really did to find a way of not putting this at a 10, but I just couldn't compete with where we're at as a country, culture, and the geopolitics of our time. Not only is this movie relevant because of how we historically have made the Nazis out to be the worst villains to ever walk the face of the earth, or how we use them as the comparison point for everything we want to make the villain in modern politics, but also for the general rise of all of these extreme groups across the globe. Indeed, how can we honestly sit in judgment of others after what has been going on in our own country for the past six years? To me, this is another important lesson in humility, and between its current relevance as well as the historical importance expressing despite also being fictional, a part of history we need to be more thoughtful of. I had to go with a 10. I I really don't see any way around it. I think you've probably convinced me, and I'm not going to do anything to to criticize it or try to distinguish it, so I'll agree with your 10. So that should make the math easy. It does. Rewatchability. This straddles the difference between a must-rewatch periodically and those I would rewatch for enjoyment. It's a difficult subject matter movie, and there are some very difficult moments. When they're going through the Holocaust footage, that's just painful. It just is. And so I'm not sure how much I would get out of rewatching this for enjoyment. There are some of the courtroom scenes when Rolf is really going that I, I really enjoy, but the amount of great acting, talented direction, sweeping cinematography, and pressing historical importance of its subject matter probably puts this more in a category of a rewatch every other year or so, just for the reminder of what this movie is, especially given how few people probably know about it. So I'm going to go with a seven. (laughs) Well, that's my exact number. This is a film that, you know, if it's on, I'll go, oh, yeah, I'll watch it. But I, I need to be in the right frame of mood because, you know, if I'm having a bad day, This is not a film that's going to pick me up or help me get through the rest of the day. This is one that makes you stop and think, one that makes you cringe, and one that makes you very self-reflective in a very morose way. 
So seven is about the best I can do. So that's a seven average between us. For audience score, we had a 91% for Google users and a 93% for Rotten Tomato users for a 9.2 score overall in that category. So to recap, we had a 5 for Legacy. We had a 7.75 average for Impact Significance. We had a 9.25 for Novelty. We had a 10 for Classicness. We had a 7 for Rewatchability and a 9.2 for Audience Score, giving us a final score of 48.2 which would currently place it as tied with Goodfellas on the list. Hmm. Okay. It's an interesting comparison point when we actually get to one of those tiebreaker episodes we're going to have to eventually do. Yes. All right, remaining questions. Well, it's not necessarily the film, but just kind of the whole aspect of this. I've done a lot of research because I thought about writing a book or doing a podcast on Operation Paperclip, which was the American operation to try to collect as many of the German rocket scientists after World War II as possible. And one of the predominant ones was Warner von Braun. We picked him up. He was a Nazi party leader. He helped design the V2 that was used against England. If somebody should have been deemed a war criminal, it should have been von Braun. But the United States picked them up with a bunch of other rocket scientists and decided to hide them. So I don't know who was sitting around the Pentagon on that day, but they decided, okay, where can we hide a bunch of Nazi rocket scientists? Huntsville, Alabama. You look at Von Braun and you think, was there a level of hypocrisy that we had here going forward? I mean, we prosecute those that we feel are expendable, but don't prosecute those who we think could help us. Politics is always about expediency, and I say that to one of the world's most pragmatic politicians. Okay. How is Marlena Dietrich's character, the wife of a since-executed-for-war-crimes German general, the one we're supposed to buy as the most sympathetic German? I think this has to be one of the more questionable choices in the writing. I could buy that. I think it would have been much better had we just stayed with the two, I guess, servants for Judge Haywood, and he comes to have a respectful relationship with them because they're more average people. I don't think somehow sympathizing with the wife of a general makes much sense. Did you have any other questions? I do not have any other questions. All right, I'm going to ask this because it won Best Picture over Judgment at Nuremberg, but is West Side Story a better movie than this? Hmm, It's so different. I mean, this is the moment in time where a lot of musicals and big productions, because they were the biggest films of the year, and, you know, at least at that time, we were awarding the movies that had the most popularity more than anything else. But as far as a better film, boy... I I know it's tough to compare, and we're eventually going to compare their greatness scores, but I don't know if it's a better movie. It's been a while since I saw the original. The films that were made from musicals were, you know, in New York, you got to see all this stuff. The rest of the country did not necessarily get to see it. Sometimes there would be touring companies, but even they would only get to places like Chicago, Los Angeles, Philadelphia. So that's the only experience a lot of the country had to see very popular and well-respected musicals. So I'd have to see it again before I could answer. I'm sorry. That's fair. All right. Remaining thoughts for the week? Well, I just find it interesting that we're watching this only uh, shortly before we will be taking a vacation to Germany. In fact, where we will be... Staying for part of our trip is about an hour from Nuremberg. Yeah, I guess that is maybe ironic timing, but it's it's almost incomparable with Germany of the 60s, let alone the 40s. I don't know. Unless you travel there, would you necessarily know with how they're depicted often in American film? <laughs> yeah, I know. Where are you headed, cowboy? Nowhere special? 
nowhere special. I always wanted to go there. Next week, we will be discussing one of the biggest movies of the 1980s, Top Gun from 1986. Directed by Tony Scott, written by Jim Cash and Jack Epps Jr., starring Tom Cruise, Anthony Edwards, Kelly McGillis, Val Kilmer, and Tom Skerritt. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Please like, follow, rate, and review, or whatever on whichever platform you have so that you can join in on our fun. You can also email the show at greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com to sign up for our newsletter, or find us on Instagram, Twitter, or now TikTok at the handle at gmodepodcast. The Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Captivate FM.